40 years ago during the height of the Cold War, a nuclear exchange was a major fear for the Americans, Russians, frankly the world. There were a few ways it could happen, but it never did, leading some to conclude that the strategy of mutually assured destruction could keep nuclear Armageddon at bay. Well, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has renewed anxieties about a nuclear confrontation in frighteningly familiar ways, as well as some new ones unique to the battlefield. We've returned to a time of imagining the unimaginable. We will assess some of the nuclear threats presented by the conflict in Ukraine and reflect on some scientific and historical discoveries that led to this moment. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, what it means to have so many nuclear reactors in the line of fire, a visit to the iconic doomsday clock on its 75th anniversary, and an investigative journalist assesses the safety of our aging warheads at home. This episode is called Nuclear Worries. On the evening of February 24th, from a desk in the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin began a speech by addressing the citizens of Russia and friends. Couched in lessons about history and an antagonism toward the West, he laid out a justification for invading Ukraine. The Russian president had a warning for other countries, lest they interfere with what came next, as we hear in this translation provided by the UK's Sky News. Whoever would try to stop us and further create threats to our country, to our people, should know that Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history. We are ready for any outcome. This ominous statement, a clear reference to nuclear weapons, came a few weeks after five of the world's nuclear powers, including Russia, issued a joint statement saying that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. And yet, here we are, a little more than 30 years after the end of the Cold War, Russia nuclear saber-rattling is back. It's a historical throwback, only without nostalgia. We'll lay out some of the questions that scientists and strategists are grappling with in light of recent events. We'll hear how experts in nuclear strategy in Russia and the Cold War interpret Putin's warning and later discuss the uncharted territory of having so many nuclear reactors in a battle zone. But first... some of the big-picture scientific moments that brought us to where we are today. The discoveries that scientists made in Berlin in 1938 changed the course of history. German chemists Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann discovered that they could split uranium atoms by bombarding them with neutrons. Physicists Lisa Meitner and Otto Robert Frisch refined the process and gave it a name when they published their results, nuclear fission. And here's what makes it powerful. When a neutron hits an atom of uranium, the nucleus of the uranium atom absorbs it, which makes it unstable. It breaks apart, releasing more neutrons, which fly off, hitting other uranium atoms, making them unstable, and so on. Right, Molly. But the point here is that some of the original mass of those nuclei has been destroyed, converted into energy, a lot of energy. 
The scientists in Berlin had made the first successful attempt to tap into the enormous amount of energy contained in the nuclei of atoms. So if the uranium you have is a, you know, a dense enough lump, a so-called critical mass, well, then enough neutrons are produced to keep this fission process going. You just keep splitting more and more nuclei. This is called a chain reaction. And that is the principle behind an atomic bomb. Now, the German scientists who had established the basic physics for this, doctors Hans, Strassmer, and Meitner, refused to be involved with the development of nuclear weapons. There's another scientist whose research shaped the nuclear age and who never worked on atomic weapons directly. But because he was very worried about the German physicists who did, in 1939, Albert Einstein wrote President Roosevelt to warn him that the Nazis were trying to build an atomic bomb. Einstein suggested that the U.S. prepare by stockpiling uranium ore and pursue its own atomic weapons development. And that led to the Manhattan Project that produced the world's first nuclear weapons. And it's kind of interesting, Molly, because its famous equation, E equals mc squared, which describes the energy released by an atomic bomb, well, that leads many people to assume that Einstein was a member of the Manhattan Project. But he wasn't. Einstein was a pacifist. And after the war, he was filled with regret. He said that had he known that the German attempt to build an atom bomb would not succeed, he wouldn't have written the president. He wouldn't have done anything. After Americans dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the war ended. But the genie would never return to the bottle. Albert Einstein turned his efforts to warning the world about nuclear weapons, as he did in this presentation in 1946. Weapons of destruction are of a kind such that no place on earth is safeguarded against certain total, total destruction. The only hope for protection lies in the securing of peace in a supernational way. To work toward that peace, Einstein and Manhattan Project scientists founded the nonprofit organization and journal, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, in 1945. It continues its work today. I'm John Mecklen. I'm editor-in-chief of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. The people who founded the Bulletin thought that world leaders and the public in general didn't understand, you know, atomic weapons, nuclear science. And they were afraid that, frankly, that politicians would just consider the bomb to be a bigger explosive and they would just go ahead and use it in warfare and didn't understand that it could literally end civilization. So they wanted to alert the public to both the positive and negative aspects of nuclear energy, because there is a positive side to nuclear science. I mean, you know, if you have cancer, you go can go get radiation treatment and be cured sometimes. I mean, there are positive uses of it, but they were extremely afraid that the politicians of the world didn't understand the great danger it could pose. The bulletin continues to be advised by a team of experts in all the fields it covers, including nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. It also confers with many science and policy people around the world. They determine where the hands sit on its now famous doomsday clock. The clock first appeared on the cover of the Bulletin magazine in 1947, what would become an iconic symbol of our nuclear vulnerability. It's a tool for the public, an easily appreciated indicator of how close society is to nuclear Armageddon. Zoomsday clock is not a measure. It's a metaphor. There's not some scientific formula that we plug things into to get the setting on the clock. It's a metaphor, but it's 
one that the setting is arrived at very seriously. And it is meant to reflect two general things. First, does the world face a worse threat of midnight or doomsday or apocalypse now than it did a year ago? And how does that compare to the height of the Cold War, say, in the 50s and 60s? When the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb in 1949, developing it much faster than the U.S. had expected, the atomic scientists advanced their clock to three minutes to doomsday, sensing that a nuclear arms race had begun. As indeed it had. In 1952, the United States successfully tested the still more powerful hydrogen bomb, 1,000 times greater than the force of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. When the Soviet Union acquired the H-bomb, the doomsday clock was moved to two minutes to midnight, the closest it would ever come in the 36 years between 1947 and now. That last clip aired on the McNeil-Lair News Hour in 1983. And Seth, we might both remember that broadcast, but not the events it described, unless do you remember when the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb in 1949? Probably shouldn't admit to it, but I do. I was reading the Washington Post, and of course that was the headline story. The Soviets have the bomb, something we had been worried about for years. Okay, Seth, you're reading the Washington Post. You would have been quite young, and you were reading the Washington Post then? Well, that was the only paper we got. And, and look, Molly, up until that point, I had been reading these articles about you know, how many miles away from where the bomb goes off, you know, you had no chance of survival. And I lived in, you know, the suburbs outside of Washington. So I was drawing concentric circles on a map of Washington, you know, to see if I was within the distance range to be totally wiped out. But the problem was every two years, they got bigger bombs. It was really depressing. That must have been very terrifying for a young boy. Yes, I was very good at ducking and covering under desks. I was good at it. Well, that brings us to today. And where are we in assessing today's nuclear threats? There has been progress in reducing nuclear arsenals from their peak of 60,000 in the mid-1980s, but there are still plenty. Together, nine countries possess approximately 13,000 weapons. 90% of those are held by the U.S. and Russia. Meanwhile, the bulletin has expanded its list of man-made threats to humanity since the Cold War. In addition to nuclear, the board today includes experts who address threats posed by climate change and disruptive technologies, such as artificial intelligence and biotechnology. And that last one includes gene editing, which could make novel bioweapons possible. They're all considered when the board sets the hands of the doomsday clock. And where are the hands now? They're at 100 seconds to midnight. That's the closest they have ever been. The bulletin, the people who founded it, understood that you know nuclear science, nuclear weapons, wouldn't be the last technological advance that posed an existential threat to humanity. It was just the first thing that humans had made that could destroy civilization or humanity. But they knew others were coming. And so the bulletin has long covered a wider array of subjects than people may have thought because of the name. When the Doomsday Clock first appeared in, in 1947, when it debuted, uh, where were the hands set then in that year, two years after the end of the war? Yeah, it was at seven minutes to midnight. And that is entirely because the artist who created that, who created that as a cover for the magazine, thought that seven minutes to midnight looked good artistically. It had 
no meaning whatever about threat levels or whatever. And, and the hands, initially, they had no concept that the hands would move. Mm-hmm. Well, they have moved many times. And if you if one looks at the graph of the changing hands of the clock through time, they have swung wildly up and down, moving further away from midnight and, and closer to midnight. One thing we haven't clarified is what midnight is exactly. And what does midnight represent on the clock? It represents apocalypse. It represents something occurring that ends civilization as we know it. I mean, there's a possibility in a worldwide thermonuclear war, if all the weapons were used, that that could literally exterminate humanity. But that isn't necessary to be considered an apocalypse. Uh, it's any, even a much lower use of nuclear weapons can could create a situation that sort of ends civilization, where we're back to sort of, you know, making rock tools and stuff, you know, and, and that that end of civilization event or events is is what midnight represents. And that could be brought about by a nuclear war. But it also, if we don't get a grip on climate change, the end result would be a world in which nobody who lives in the current world would want to live. It would be the end of our current civilization. Let's talk more about where we are today. Um, After reviewing the Ukraine situation, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has left the clock at the closest it has been to midnight, which is 100 seconds. That is about a minute 40 (laughs) seconds to midnight. That's the closest it's ever been. And that did not change after you reviewed the situation in Ukraine and why not? When we set it at 100 seconds to midnight, we had factored in there were already troops, you know, Russian troops massed on the border, you know, it was already looked like they were going to invade. And, and that was factored in already to our decision. 100 seconds to midnight indicates extreme danger. It's closest the hands have ever been to midnight. And we didn't change it because this is what 100 seconds to midnight looks and feels like, what's going on right now. Russia has invaded Ukraine unprovoked, but along the way, Russian President Vladimir Putin has made repeated threats that if countries responded in certain ways, he would use nuclear weapons. Can I challenge you on that a bit? Because he hasn't said he would use nuclear weapons. I think he's been ambiguous, and that's what's partly been what's terrifying. I think he said that if anyone gets in his way, this is a statement he made before he invaded, the consequences would be the sort which you have not faced in your history. So is, is there some something unclear about that to you, Molly? <laughs> well, I'm not an expert in this area. It is ambiguous. There are no experts I know of that thinks that's the least bit. Well, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky himself says that Putin's threat is a bluff. So it must be ambiguous to some people. How is it that it's not to you and your board? I just explained it's crystal clear to me and the experts I've talked to that these are threats of using a nuclear weapon. And Russian military doctrine allows for the use, particularly of tactical nuclear weapons in certain circumstances. And President Putin's statements have been very carefully crafted to 
suggest that the circumstances in Ukraine fit within that doctrine that would allow the use of nuclear weapons. So, you know, not to not to argue with you, Molly, I like you, but the, the threat is clear. But John, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just wondering how it is that those who are understand the history of the Cold War and Putin and Russia and nuclear weapons, your board determines that that is crystal clear. Look, when you order your nuclear forces to a higher state of readiness, and you say the preceding couple of threats that he's made, it's just clear to me. I am not saying that I know he will or expecting him to. I'm not putting some sort of probability calculus on the use of nuclear weapons, but you know we've had top experts write for us about why they are worried that he actually might in this situation. Well, well, finally, John, on this the 75th anniversary of the Doomsday Clock, um, a year when humanity has more tools than ever to extinguish itself, kind of a grim milestone. Is it too much to ask for signs of optimism, or could you give us some hope, some hopeful developments? I always tell people that, you know, humans can manage whatever they create, and I, I solidly believe that. And nuclear weapons were created in 1945, and since World War II, they haven't been used. I I believe with continued focus that we can manage them so that they're not used. It's what we're focused on. I wouldn't be doing this job if I didn't think we could do it. I really think we can keep midnight from happening. Well, John Mecklen, thank you for taking time during this especially busy period to speak with us. Thank you so much, Molly. It was a joy. John Mecklen is editor-in-chief of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Later in the show, the questionable safety of the U.S. nuclear arsenal here at home. But first, the perils of having nuclear reactors on a battlefield. Probably the first question that one asks oneself is, is it conceivable that something could be done to the nuclear power plant that will spread radioactive material outside the province of the plant itself? That's next. This episode of Big Picture Science is Nuclear Worries. Ukraine is heavily dependent on nuclear energy. There are four main power plants in the country, a total of 15 reactors, and they generate more than half the country's energy. A war in that country means that we have entered the unfamiliar territory of having an unprecedented number of nuclear power plants on the battlefield. The most famous reactor is Chernobyl. It was the site of a disaster in 1986 caused by the combination of a flawed design and power surge. The explosion that resulted released a cloud of radioactive material into the atmosphere. Russian troops took Chernobyl on the first day of their invasion of Ukraine, then the Zaporozhia power plant in the southeast, the largest nuclear-generating facility in Europe, was shelled by artillery and captured. The video of the shelling was dramatic. As the attack unfolded and the fire burned at Zaporozhia, 
there was speculation about the dangers that it presented. Could hitting a reactor trigger a mushroom cloud? Could the attack replicate one of the three historical nuclear disasters, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, or even Chernobyl? We can offer reassurance on that last claim. The occurrence of another Chernobyl is not likely. Nevertheless, nuclear plants are vulnerable, and some events could lead to dangerous exposure to radiation. Rob Rosner is a physicist at the University of Chicago. He is the former director of the Argonne National Laboratory and a former chair of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists Science and Security Board. He'll help us understand what to worry about and what not to worry about concerning these reactors. But first, a reminder of how a fission nuclear reactor works, because this also helps us understand what its vulnerabilities are. At the core of the reactor is the fuel, in this case an isotope of uranium, U-235. Now under controlled fission, a slow breakup of the uranium nuclei, the core produces, well, radiation, a lot of heat, and more neutrons. Those neutrons break up other uranium nuclei in a chain reaction. However, the chain reaction is slowed way down, unlike in an atomic bomb. At Zaporizhia, the neutrons are slowed down by water, so you get heat, not an explosion. And you can use that heat to generate steam that can spin a turbine and generate electricity. No exhaust gases. And this brings us to two vulnerable parts of a nuclear reactor that, as you'll hear, shouldn't be messed with. The cooling process that keeps the reactor from generating so much heat that the core melts down. And a meltdown is what happened at Three Mile Island. In that case, some radioactive gas was released, but not enough to have a detectable health effect. The other vulnerable targets are the pools of water that hold the old nuclear fuel, known as the spent fuel. These are two things to keep in mind as Dr. Rosner describes the threats to reactors on the battlefield, and I have to say that his explanations were reassuring. Bob, when we think of the dangers of war, I think uh, fairly few of us envision the targeting of nuclear generating plants. Has that ever happened prior to the uh, invasion of Ukraine? No. That's as brief as I can be. No. But in some sense, maybe it never could have happened because people involved in land wars were not usually the same people who had uh, nuclear plants. Well, that's not completely correct. For example, the Chinese and the Indians have had the land wars and they never targeted each other's uh, nuclear reactors. Both countries have nuclear reactors. Uh, Pakistan and India uh, have been unfriendly in the past. They've never targeted each other's nuclear facilities. So this is the first time in a land war where we have seen one country having its nuclear generating facilities deliberately attacked, as far as I could tell. Does that accord with your impression of what was going on? I think there's no question that uh, the six nuclear reactors that we're talking about were attacked. And the question is, was it intentional or what was the intention? One of the things that we know about wars, mistakes are made. And one can imagine that the unit commander who commanded the forces that did end up attacking the Ukrainian uh, nuclear site, uh, basically didn't completely understand what his task was. If his task was to cut that site off from the grid, there are many ways of doing it. And one can imagine that, uh, you know, he made a mistake. That's entirely possible. And, And in support of that argument is the fact that the Russians uncharacteristically actually did agree to a ceasefire at that site. So they stopped fighting. 
uh, I think that anybody who was watching the news, and I was at the time, of the attack on the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, which is just down the Dnieper River a bit from the town of Zaporizhia, uh, you know, this is a big plant. I mean, if it's just to take it over militarily, there's got to be some reason for that, right? Is it obvious that they, they had some strategic goal in mind? Well, uh, I think the answer is yes, because uh, even before the actual attack across the border, uh, the Russians uh, were already trying to uh, damage the Ukrainian grid through cyber attacks. So they uh, have an intention of bringing the Ukrainian electric grid down. In the case of nuclear power plants, trying to do that is very tricky. And you most definitely don't do it by shooting at the plant itself. There's no question about that. Okay, well, what I hope that we can kind of describe is the actual danger of this kind of action. Because after all, you know, if you attack a coal-fired plant, something, you might knock that plant off the line, right? You may kill some people. You may be able to overwhelm the staff there. But a nuclear plant, of course, raises this specter of nuclear explosion, something going nonlinear in the plant, and suddenly you've got a much, much bigger problem than you did before it started. So if you think about what you ought to worry about when you're dealing with nuclear reactors in a war zone, probably the first question that one asks oneself is, is it conceivable that something could be done to the nuclear power plant that will spread radioactive materials outside the province of the plant itself? I think the answer is yes, uh, but it's a limited yes. So the one kind of accident that could happen again is what happened at Three Mile Island and at Fukushima Daiichi, which is a core meltdown. And that could happen as a consequence of uh, damage to the cooling systems or the, uh, the power systems that power the, the pumps. So that could happen. Absolutely. And that would, of course, uh, knock the plants uh, out. And the thing to keep in mind is that when a core meltdown happens, given the design of these power plants, the escape of, of nuclear material from the plant itself is minimal. In fact, in Three Mile Island, there's absolutely no evidence that there was any spread of any nuclear material, despite the fact that the core did, did melt down. So, so the, the problem is that you cause an enormous amount of economic damage because once you, that happens the plant is gone and basically you know uh, billions of dollars these plants are you know to replicate a plant like that somewhere five to ten billion dollars it's toast it will never be reopened let's cut to the truly awful scenario what if the artillery or whatever it was they were firing had hit one of the six reactor cores at Zaporizhia where the uranium-235 is producing the heat. I mean, you know, that would be kind of a bullseye strike. But what would happen then? Well, I don't think that's the worst that could happen, actually. So uh, trying to shoot at the concrete building that surrounds the pressure vessel, that would be foolish, actually, because the concrete is quite resistant uh, to attack. You have to remember the, these structures were designed to, for example, prevent an airplane from crashing in and damaging the plant. Um, if the shells hit the reactor building itself, possibly damaging the building enough to actually, for example, uh, damage the pressure vessel inside, the reactor inside, then uh, that would have a financial consequence for the, for the country because you basically ruined the plant. And uh, it's likely that when that happens, you also interrupt the cooling. It's likely that you'll get a core meltdown 
basically turning the, uh, the facility into a pile of junk that will never be fixed. The chances of nuclear material spreading is really pretty minimal in, in an incident like that. Okay. So, in fact, the vulnerabilities of these kinds of plants, it's not that you can turn them into a bomb. It's that you can turn them into a, a bunch of highly radioactive metal and other materials, and you've lost your generating capability. Correct. The problem is that there's right next to the plant, there is something that's hugely vulnerable and actually much more consequential if hit by a turtle shell. And that is where the spent fuel is uh, kept. So the, the fuel that's used up is usually extracted from the core and put into a swimming pool, a cooling pool, uh, to cool down, sometimes for periods of five to 10 years, something like that. And the most dangerous material in that spent fuel is actually not the uranium-235. It's the products that result from the fission that goes on in the reactor, strontium and uh, cesium. Then there could be an oops moment if shells hit the swimming pool where, where the spent fuel is uh, kept, then you can actually uh, lift some of that material up in the atmosphere and it will spread probably not anywhere as, uh, as widely as what happened at Chernobyl because of the fire there, but it will spread certainly in the, in the neighborhood for miles around the, the power plant. It would be hugely consequential. Okay, so the most vulnerable parts are the pools with the spent fuel rods. You mentioned Chernobyl. Could we have another Chernobyl disaster if a plant like Zaporizhia is damaged? What could not happen is the Chernobyl-like event. And the reason is that what happened at Chernobyl is that the moderator, the material that slows the neutrons down to make the chain reaction possible, was graphite. Graphite, unfortunately, is just carbon and carbon, we know, burns. And uh, the graphite caught fire. What happened then was that the fire generated a thermal plume, you know, hot air rises. And as it did, it carried nuclear material up into the atmosphere, very high in the atmosphere. And the winds up there then carried that material into Western Europe, to Sweden, Poland, and so on. That's what happened. So, so that cannot happen for the simple reason that those reactors that we're talking about in Ukraine that used graphite as a moderator have now been shut down. Uh, they also took Chernobyl. Chernobyl, was any of Chernobyl online? Was no, it produced? no. The so Chernobyl reactors are offline. And the one that, uh, that caused all the damage is sitting in a sarcophagus, a concrete blanket with another building around it, trying to, you know, contain the... Uh, the environmental damage. But why would they want it's it? It's not a power source anymore. Okay, so why do the Russians want it? That's an excellent question. <laughs> okay. I don't know the answer to that. I, I wonder if they do. All right, the Chernobyl sarcophagus there uh, has a, an, what's called an exclusion zone around it. And it's the, I think the idea is fairly simple. You get any closer than this, and you're going to get a very high dosage of radiation. Uh, what, what's going to happen to those troops? As far as the troops entering the exclusion zone, uh, whether or not uh, that was safe or not depends a lot on what information the Russian troops were given about the site. The site isn't uniformly radioactive. There are hot spots, there are large areas which are not dangerous to be at. And if, if you have, you know, if you walk onto the site 
and you know what areas to avoid, then you're then you're okay. And I just don't know what information those troops really had. It, it, it's conceivable that they had the right information because after all, a lot of the work on uh, putting the exclusion zone into place and all that was done when the Soviet Union still existed. So the Russians surely had the, the site information. Whether they, they gave that information to the troops, I have no idea. Would the troops have been, you know, wearing badges, dosimeters or whatever that would, you know, they could show to their higher ups? If you ask me whether <laughs> I would have suggested it, the answer is, of course, of course I would have. Uh, they, they should have done that. But I don't, I have no idea. At the time of this recording, what is the status of both the Chernobyl and Zaporizhia plants? I mean, are they both still staffed? What information we do have uh, comes from the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, the IEA. And uh, they have said that both sites are safe, meaning that uh, the, the staff that was there to begin with is in place and they're being allowed to work. Should we be surprised to hear that there are workers at Chernobyl? I mean, I thought it was defunct. It defunct, it defunct as an energy-producing site, but it's a site where you have to keep watch. The sarcophagus uh, has ventilation. You know, ventilation. You have to make sure the temperature doesn't rise too much inside, and so there there are systems in place, safety systems in place, that are still operating, and they have to be maintained. Somebody has to be paying attention. Well. Bob Rosener, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It's a pleasure to talk about this and to let people know that you know what, what to worry about, what not to worry about. Robert Rosner is a physicist at the University of Chicago. He is the former director of the Argonne National Laboratory and the former chair of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, Science and Security Board. Well, Molly, as you said in his introduction, his explanation clarified a bunch of things in a kind of a reassuring way. The points he made were, there's no danger of turning the reactor into a bomb. You can fire shells into it all day long. You won't do that. If there is danger, it's hitting the uh, cooling pools, the pools where the spent uranium rods are kept. That danger is because if you were to you know, blow those up, you would release a lot of radioactive stuff into the air where it could spread around the globe or at least around Europe. The most likely thing that will happen is somewhat different, and that is damage that would lead to wrecking an expensive reactor, depriving the Ukrainians of power and making this particular facility worthless for future use. Next, journalist Eric Schlosser. He discusses the U.S. nuclear arsenal and why the purported security of mutually assured destruction during the Cold War was an illusion and why that matters today. And it's a testament to our weapons designers' skill that none of these weapons have detonated accidentally. But I interviewed a great many weapons designers and they said, well, yeah, it's a testament to our skill, but it's also luck. This episode of Big Picture Science is Nuclear Worries. Anyone who's read Eric Schlosser's book, Command and Control, or who saw the documentary it inspired, 
probably had restless sleep afterwards if they slept at all. The subtitle suggests why. Nuclear weapons, the Damascus accident, and the illusion of safety. In it, he tells the not widely known story of the 1980 Damascus accident and how close this oops moment at an Arkansas nuclear silo came to catastrophe. But Mr. Schlosser's investigative reporting didn't end there. As he lays out in the book and in other writing, the idea that nuclear weapons quietly sitting in their silos during peacetime are safe is an illusion. His conclusion could be summed up as accidents happen, and they did, only we didn't hear about most of them. The nuclear threat posed by Russia is of contemporary concern, but the nuclear threat really never went away. It's been simmering in the background. Along with accidents, he writes, the nuclear arms race has continued. Mr. Schlosser describes the threats posed by a new nuclear arms race. The nuclear arms race during the Cold War was a bipolar arms race. Uh, and I don't mean in the psychological sense of huge mood swings. I mean that there were essentially two major nuclear powers, the United States and the Soviet Union. And it was their rivalry which caused the great risk during the Cold War. Uh, today, we have a multipolar arms race in which there are nine countries that have nuclear weapons. And all nine nuclear powers right now are modernizing their arsenals. And it's much more complicated. Uh, the hatred between India and Pakistan is intense. It has a strong, uh, not only nationalistic, but also religious component. And these two countries are neighbors. And the flight time for, of a missile from Pakistan to India would be on the order of four minutes, six minutes, nine minutes, not a half hour, uh, 40 minutes like it might be between the United States and Russia. So the pressure to use nuclear weapons in a conflict would be enormous. There's a saying in nuclear war, use them or lose them. And if India and Pakistan were to have a real conflict, there'd be enormous pressure for them to use their nuclear weapons quickly. And that makes the danger of an accidental nuclear war even greater. You know, it makes me wonder what we learned from those frightening standoffs during the Cold War and from the efforts of the scientists who worked after World War II, after the bombs were dropped in Japan, and dedicated themselves to a future where they would never be used again. What, what happened to those lessons of caution 70 years ago? I think that uh, a great historical amnesia descended upon the United States. And there really was a sense that the Berlin Wall had come down, the Cold War had ended, and the nuclear threat had gone with it. And more than half the American population today was not born or were small children when the Cold War ended. So there isn't this sort of uh, memory of the daily threat the daily anxiety. Uh, during the 1980s, in particular, when I was in university, there was a real sense that there could be a nuclear war any day and that the world would be destroyed. And we now know that that risk was real and that there were a couple of times in the 1980s when there might have been a nuclear war. So it's been, a in the United States particularly, there's been a forgetting of this existential threat. 
I wonder if you could talk about what you call the illusion of safety by these nuclear weapons that are sitting there. You know, they're not being launched in anger, and yet they still pose a threat. And why is that? Well, when it comes to nuclear weapons, it's important to keep in mind that the United States invented this technology, perfected this technology, and probably has the safest, most efficient nuclear weapons in the world. And yet, again and again, we've come close to blowing ourselves up with our own nuclear weapons. So that should be disconcerting. Uh, in my book, I looked at, you know, not the fact that there weren't hundreds, but there were more than a thousand incidents that the Pentagon recorded of significant accidents involving our own nuclear weapons. And to simplify why this is the case, nuclear weapons are machines. They are designed by human beings and therefore inherently are flawed. You cannot name any machine ever invented that doesn't go wrong somehow. And you know, commercial airliners have a record of safety that is unbelievable, and yet you know, every now and then they crash and we try to figure out why. So there's been a real learning curve with this technology, with nuclear weapons, and our weapons are much safer now than they were in the 1970s, but there is a risk built into the machines. And then these weapons become part of complex technological systems. You have the missiles, you have the um, aircraft, you have the bombs that you know, carry the nuclear device, but you also have the communications systems, the early warning systems, more complexity, more potential for mistakes. But then there are also administrative systems. These are the operators, the human beings who are in control of these weapons. And with the best of intentions, these people are flawed. You know, once a nuclear weapon is fully assembled and ready for use, either being launched from a missile, dropped from a bomber, uh, there is a chance of an accidental detonation, and there is a chance that that weapon will be used by someone who isn't authorized to use it. These are the most dangerous machines ever invented, and we have forgotten that fact. I want to get an example of the kinds of accidents that you have documented. But first, could you just help us picture these missiles and where they are in the U.S., for example? Can you give us an image of where they are located in the country? Should we be imagining them in the, in the desert underground or in a, in a hill or in a bunker near a city? Where are they? Well, one of the reasons that nuclear weapons are so dangerous is because they're out of sight and they're out of mind. If there was a gigantic nuclear missile in Times Square, you'd have to walk by it every day and think, oh my God, that thing's ready to go off. But our uh, land-based missiles are all in the upper Midwest. Um, there are about 400 of them. They're underground, they're out of sight. Oddly enough, most of them are on, you know, surrounded by private land. It's not like they're located on military bases. And that creates all kinds of safety issues because thousands of miles of cable that give the launch instructions are right underneath farmer's land in, um, in uh, North Dakota, in Colorado, in Wyoming, and someone could inter inadvertently, you know, with a backhoe, sever one of those cables or someone with more nefarious purposes might want to get into those cables and spoof the system. But 
most of our nuclear weapons are actually underwater. And on huge uh, ballistic missile submarines and the bases for those submarines, one is in Georgia, one is in uh, off the, about a half hour west of Seattle, and that's where you have an enormous amount of nuclear weapons, both loaded onto the submarines and also at the storage facilities. An accident um, at the Kitsap submarine base off the, you know, right on the Washington coast could have catastrophic effects for the city of Seattle. The uh, Titan II missile, the D- Damascus incident in 1980, is is truly terrifying. And if anyone has not read Command or Control or seen the documentary, I I recommend both because um, your storytelling is is truly hair-raising, but it wasn't the only incident. We came very close to a a nuclear catastrophe there in Arkansas, but it wasn't the only one. Could you give us an overview of the kinds of things that you discovered were happening to our nuclear arsenals? You know, when you have complex technological systems, completely unanticipated, even trivial things, can set off a chain of events that become catastrophic. So the Damascus accident um, in Arkansas Someone dropped a tool in a missile silo. It pierced the missile, caused a fuel leak. The missile exploded. Um, There was an incident uh, at a Minuteman site where someone was trying to repair uh, the security alarm and used the wrong tool, pulled out a fuse, created a short circuit, and blew the warhead off of a Minuteman missile. So again and again, we've come very close to catastrophe. And it's a testament to our weapons designers' skill that none of these weapons have detonated accidentally. But I interviewed a great many weapons designers, and they said, well, yeah, it's a testament to our skill, but it's also luck, pure luck. And you don't want the lives of thousands or millions of people being dependent on our continuing to be lucky. So we've come close again and again. And again, you know, if we invented this technology, think about other countries that have not been as technologically advanced. Uh, The North Korean nuclear weapons, for example, what sort of safety mechanisms do they have? And as we're looking at the Russian military right now and some of the equipment that they're using, who knows what they're, not only the safety mechanisms in the weapons, but the safety protocols for how those weapons are handled. You mentioned Russia, and as someone who has written extensively about nuclear threats in their various forms, as you watch the events in Ukraine, can you share with us where your thoughts are are these days? Yeah, I think it's highly irresponsible of Putin to be threatening the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, That threat should never be made. That's the first point. The second point is I worry about Russia and its tactical nuclear weapons. These are lower yield weapons that might be used on the battlefield. And Putin is threatening to possibly use one of these in this battle over the Ukraine. And so far, it looks like Russia has not actually gone to a higher level of nuclear alert. But if there's any sign that Russia is removing these nuclear weapons from its bunkers and putting them onto missiles or putting them onto planes, uh, we are entering a, a level of danger that we have not seen really since the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
Well, if we do get through this moment and see the other side of it, um, and then we're facing, we're looking at these nuclear arsenals around the world. Eric, is there anything short of total disarmament that will keep us safe? Uh, these weapons must be abolished, period. Nuclear weapons must be abolished. Now, that's not going to happen overnight. And until they are completely abolished, there must be a reduction in the number of them. And the nuclear nations must agree to take their nuclear weapons off of alert. And what that means is you don't have a missile that's ready to be launched within minutes so that any kind of nuclear use must be a deliberate result <laughs> of discussion and not something that results just because someone turns a key and a missile is launched and it's gone. So I'm glad that you're reminding people of this danger that is out of sight and out of mind, but, but no less dangerous as a result. Eric Schlosser, what a, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you. Eric Schlosser is a writer and author of Command and Control, Nuclear Weapons, The Damascus Accident, and The Illusion of Safety. This show would not be possible without the dedication of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that considers the impacts of technology on our future. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and a big thanks to our listeners and Patreon supporters. The original music in the show was by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that looks at the unique nuclear threats posed by the war in Ukraine is called Nuclear Worries. 